Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries... If you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey folks, this is Kevin. For this compilation of classic risk stories in honor of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, we have a very special guest host, Kristen Meinzer. Kristen has been in on the creation and hosting of so many amazing podcasts, like By the Book, Movie Therapy with Rafer and Kristen, Daily Fail, and How to Be Fine. It is such an honor to have her on the show this week. So, without further ado, now here's the show. Hello, everybody. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. You're hearing Luna Lee behind me now, and I'm Kristen Meinzer, sitting in to guest host Risk's fifth Asian American Lives compilation. Today, we're going to look back at three classic Risk stories about, among other things, being Asian in America. As an Asian American myself, I love all these stories for their variety, humor, and at times honest depictions of pain. They truly illuminate the fact that Asian Americans are by no means a monolith, 
but that we do have certain shared experiences, particularly related to how the world treats us. We're going to start things off with a story that is so fun. It is chock full of energy and surprises by Maritas Zurbano. In it, she gives us a look behind the curtain of the world of stage magicians. You can find her at womanhypnotist.com. And here's Maritas now with a story we call Real Magic. I was raised in Willowbrook, Illinois, and I finally got to the big city, Chicago. I got a job at Water Tower Place Mall, working at this chocolate chip cookie factory, making oversized cookies. When I put the pink frilly apron around my waist, the manager told me I looked like the undocumented version of Snow White. So I'm waiting for the bus stop after work, freezing cold and these two women walk up to me holding a paper bag one of them says hey did you lose this I said no and they opened the bag and uh, they pulled out $10,000 in cash well it looked like $10,000 to me I was 18 years old right and I said well you should turn that into the police and they said oh The police would just keep the money for themselves. It's probably drug money. You know what? We should launder the money. We should deposit $10,000 into your bank and withdraw $10,000 in fresh bills. Well, I don't have $10,000. Well, how much money do you have? Uh, 300? Look, if you can only launder $300, we'll launder the rest, and we'll still split the money in half. That's $5,000 each. Now look, I have always wanted to live above the law, in a world above the rules, like a part of uh, Al Capone's gang. I wanted to have backroom conversations, secret handshakes, and a family that would do anything for you. A family that would take care of you. Yes, yes, I will help you launder the money. So we went to my ATM and I gave them $300. Great job. Listen, we're going to go to our bank now. You hold on to the bag. We trust you. We'll be right back. So I watched them get in the car and turn the corner. I am alone. I look in the bag, and I find that it's full of nothing but cut slips of paper. Now, yes, I was really upset because that was my rent money. I don't know how I would make that up, and I don't talk to my parents. They're in California, and I thought we were cool. I mean, you know, they're black. I'm Filipino. Like, we're friends. And it's so lonely living in the city when you just moved here from Willowbrook, Illinois. I thought we were going to do, like, you know, sleepovers. We'd, we'd paint each other's nails. We'd be each other's besties. I mean, I guess I was, yeah, I was 18 years old, sure. <laughs> well, I did find out later on that that is one of the oldest cons in the book. It's called The Pigeon Drop. And as I got on the bus and I was crying all the way home, I... I swore to devote the rest of my life to studying the art of deception. That idea stayed with me for four years. Because in those four years, I was very happy. I went to art school. I fell in love. I mean, why would you study the art of deception? Who cares? (laughs) Let's be honest. But... Four years later, I had to get an abortion and I broke up with my first love. And as I was laying on the floor, drinking another gin martini, listening to Billie Holiday, as one does in Chicago, I crushed a cockroach 
on the floor and I thought, you know what? I've always wanted to study magic. <laughs> so back then, if you want to get anything done, you look in the yellow pages. And so I look under magic in the yellow pages. And there's this place called Magic Incorporated in Germantown on the north side. I took my bike and I, I biked up there. I walk in the store. The floor is red carpet. The walls are red. There are glass countertops all around the room, like giant jewels. And in these clear jewels, you look in there, there are glass shelves. And on each shelf is a little device, and they're labeled. One is an egg vase. One is you know, a finger chopper. There's something called a chink-a-chink. And at the time, I thought, oh, okay, it's probably racist, but whatever. <laughs> and then next to that is a little metal thing called the Jackbox. And, you know, I'm from Chicago. I'm used to this. I'm like, oh, okay, that's probably racist too. But, you know, white people are fucking stupid, so that's fine. You know, I'm here to learn. I want to be in this world. And there are all these giant posters of these white men in tuxedos with giant elephants and magical puffs of smoke. And to me, at that time, I thought, you know, this is magic. This is this is the history of magic. And I want to be a part of this history. Before I arrived, I called the shop to ask about magic lessons. So this little guy comes out of the back room with a very nicely trimmed white beard. He looks like a Santa Claus in real life. His name is Bob. Very kind, deep voice. He said, oh, so you want magic lessons. And so he takes me into the back room. And so I thought, oh, I get to go into the secret area where all the magic happens. And it looked like a giant circus. It was painted yellow and there were little, you know, those little stands where like elephants kind of stand up in the circus. And he sat there and he took out two pearl knives. And then he showed me the knives were white and he shook them and suddenly they turned red and he let me examine them. And they were these very expensive pearl knives. I thought, wow, I mean, this has to be real. I mean, it's expensive. I mean, <laughs> like we're not fooling around anymore with, I don't know what stupid magic, this is real magic. And he, he gently held my hands and we did, we did card magic. And I didn't feel like he was your regular Chicago creeper. He, he was really a very, very soft-spoken. And what I realized is that um, all the guys, well, almost all the guys at Magic Incorporated were so nice to me. And everybody was, you know, happy to share a new sleight of hand thing they learned how to multiply coins in your hand or make fire appear in the air and we'd meet every Saturday and new people would come in all the time and like random police officers off duty be like hey you know what you do is you you get a bumper sticker from the policeman's ball you put it on your car and they'll never pull you over like stuff like that like just really like insider information and I felt more and more like a white guy all the time. Now, hold on, I'm from Chicago. So to survive, I really didn't see myself as like a regular Filipino person. I saw myself as like one of the white people and maybe I could be a white guy and I could have my own magic show. And it just seemed like I was surrounded by all these dorky white guys with thick glasses and pocket protectors. They did an okay job doing magic, but I felt I was cuter and younger, and and why not? I decided to move to Las Vegas and become <laughs> a professional magician. That shop was owned by Frances Marshall and her husband, Jay Marshall. Frances is a very famous female magician, and I realized all these guys in magic in Chicago were very kind to me because of Francis. Francis just subliminally created this 
community of respect for women. And we were such a tight knit community that her husband, Jay Marshall, who turns out to be a famous magician, he knew Frank Sinatra, he was the Dean of American Magic. He gave me the number of someone in Vegas to contact. He said, here, here, you should call this guy, Bill. Yeah, yeah, he's a little black boy. He'll show you the way. Well, I got to Vegas and it turns out Bill was not a little black boy. He's a 65 year old black man. <laughs> but that's part of, that's part of Chicago. And these guys, you know, whatever, that's fine. You know, that's how they do, whatever. I just want to learn magic. So I call up Bill and Bill offers to drive me to the Las Vegas Magic Club meeting. I get into Bill's car and he says, hey, hey, have you ever seen this before? And he hands me a $5 bill, but instead of a person in the portrait area, it's a woman sucking cock. And he's handed me another bill and it was a $10 bill and same thing. The portrait was a woman sucking dick. And I said, oh yeah, I didn't even react because I wanted to be part of the club. I want to be one of the guys. I want to be cool. I wanted to be, you know, just not even phased. So Billy and I walk into a room and this is the back room where it's just white painted walls with stains of soy sauce. And Billy says, well, let me, let me let you meet the big man. So we walk up to uh, this wall of a man. There's a group of people around him talking and Billy interrupts, hey, uh, Darwin, there's a friend here of Jay Marshall's and this 300 pound man in a tuxedo, by the way, in a black tuxedo turns around and looks at me. He has this comb over and he says, well, you're from Chicago, huh? I hope you're hungry. Here I have two Italian meatballs. And what he's talking about is he's holding two red sponge balls. He says, well, which one would you like? Ball number one or ball number two? He's pointing to each ball. I say, ah, oh, ball number one. He says, okay, I've got mine. You've got yours. Hold tight. He holds up his hand. Now blow. So I blow in his hand and he opens his hand. It's empty. And he says, what is that? Garlic? Open your hand. And then I suddenly have two red sponge balls in my hand when there's only one. And he says, hold on to my balls, squeeze gently. I'm gonna cough. <coughs> Did you feel anything? Open your hand. And suddenly those two red balls become three. They're multiplying in my hands. And he says, well, now you have three balls. Walk proudly. Now I have three balls. It's what kept me out of the army. Hold on to my three balls and squeeze tight. Now I want you to wish for your fondest desire. Let's see if your fondest wish comes true. Open your hand. I open my hand and the balls have transformed into a giant red sponge penis, which jumps out of my hand and it's so fucking stupid. I'm like, ah, and I'm laughing because it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I don't even have time to be offended or any of that stuff. It's just like, I am in another planet. I'm an anthropologist. I've gone back in time and I've met this caveman in a tuxedo who's handing me a red sponge penis. It's just, I want to take notes. <laughs> And to be honest, that was the moment I thought, you know what? I had better stick around in this world because someday I'm going to write a book and it's going to be a movie and I'm going to star in it and it's going to be great. Anyway, he says, well, you should come over to the house sometime. I've got a magic museum. I've got over a thousand feet of book. So I drove to, to Gary's house 
and um, there was a wagon wheel stuck in the uh, the driveway. I walk up to the house and there's little mother goose figurines in the driveway as well. And I look in the window, there's pink frilly curtains. And I think, is it possible this is the house that houses a, a multi-million dollar magic collection? I ring the doorbell and I hear little dogs barking. When Gary opens the door, there's these two little fluffy dogs with pink ribbons in their hair <laughs> jumping up and down. He says, well, welcome, mom, we've got company. And I walk in there and again, there's these pink frilly curtains, a pot of something on the stove and it's a dark room with this looks like a bottle of bourbon on the floor and cigarette smoke trailing up from the, the armchair. And he says, Mom, I've got company. And this old lady head emerges from the side of the armchair and she says, Gary, be careful. She's only after your collection. Mom, well, come on, I'll show you the library. And we walk into the library and it's lined floor to ceiling with magic books. And in the middle of the room is this stone statue of um, Merlin, you know, with the, with the blue pointed hat and the gold stars. And he shows me to this place that once was the garage and it's full of, it's a guillotine and red lacquer boxes and drawers that are labeled cigarette magic and coin magic, these hand turned ephemera. I, I don't know what any of this stuff does. I, I just know that I'm somewhere very important. He shows me uh, this billiard ball and he has it in his hands and he, he kind of wiggles his fingers and the billiard ball multiplies into two. He wiggles his fingers again into three, wiggles them again into four. Now he's holding four billiard balls in between each finger. Then he does another thing with cards where cards appear and vanish. And then he has these Eisenhower dollars like they used to use in the slot machines in Las Vegas. And he would take them and he said, okay, look, look at this. These are Eisenhower dollars. Check this out. He, he had them in his palm. He puts it behind his back and then he brings them forward again. And all of a sudden, all four Eisenhower dollars are balanced on the tip of each finger. And he says, look at that. Not even the old man Nelson Downs could do that. Look at that. No rosin. Not many people could understand Gary because he talked like that old 50s talk, you know, like uh, like Sammy in the, the back room and comps and uh, the whale in the room and just this, this Las Vegas talk. I wanted to be him. And he said, well, look at this. Have you seen this? He takes out a cigar box and he removes a Polaroid and he says, well, have you seen anything like this before? And it's a... Polaroid of a woman on all fours, nude, with her breasts hanging down. He says, I like them all natural. I don't like silicone. You can chip a tooth. And I'm like, ah, this is funny. And he says, he shows me another Polaroid of another person. Uh, she's topless. He says, yeah, you give a girl $5 in this town, she'll lift up her shirt. And I was thinking, like, I'm a white guy, like, wow, that's so cool that you're so powerful that, you know, you can get anything in this town. You know, you can get a girl with a first shirt. That's, that's amazing. Good job, man. You know, and I just felt like I was being part of the fraternity. And if I could be a guy, then I could learn how to do magic tricks. I could be a, a gangster, a gambler. I could be just like Al Capone. And... He said, well, yeah, let me, well, you want to borrow something? I, so I, I borrowed uh, the Encyclopedia of Magic. He said, now read up on that. You, you want to know all about the history. So like I was, um, I got a job as a, a casino dealer. And because like I don't go to work until two, I'm free, right? So he's a bellman at the Riviera Hotel. So I would go to the Riviera Hotel anytime I wanted to. And he was in his Bellman outfit, 
he would walk with me to the back room where all the bellmen hung out. They sat in a semicircle and folding chairs around a black and white box TV among all the luggage. No one is checking if I have an identification card. I just walk back in there and he says, well, everybody, this is Mari. She loves magic from Chicago. And we'd sit there and he'd like, teach me how to make a coin vanish in the pier and he would correct me. I was like, look, Skywalker, here's my Yoda. He was gonna teach me how to become the greatest magician in the world. And by his actions, you would think that. But then he'd say shit to me like, you know, the girls are just taking away the jobs that belong to the guys. And then in the next breath, and the next time I'd see him at the magic club meeting, he would say to people, well, no one takes notes like Mari Tess. She's always taking notes at these meetings. You know who else takes notes like that? Copperfield. Copperfield would take notes like that. He would tell people, she's got these good square hands for sleight of hand. You show her something and she just does it. A great talent. And then he'd say shit like, you know, all the girls want to do is have babies and stay at home. So I, I just had to ignore him because clearly... I guess he liked me, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> and we, we were like family. Because he was magic royalty, he had comps to every single Las Vegas magic show. And back in the 1900s, every single casino had a major magic show, so I would go with them. Now, at the time, I thought, well, I was just his star student. In retrospect, that optic looks like maybe dirty old man with a Filipino mail order bride, which is very uncomfortable for me to think about now. <laughs> but at the time, it was great. It was really glamorous. You would get the best seats in the house. The magicians would come out after the show and ask Gary for his opinion. So yeah, I, I felt like I was I was part of that magic royalty. Like I I belonged. I lived in Vegas for seven years and I, I had to move away because it was just so fake and so horrible. Like, that's not actually the fucking Eiffel Tower or the Riviera. Nothing was real. I would touch something and it would not be actual wood. I would touch a vase and that would not be actual ceramic. That would be resin. It was maddening. So I accepted an artist in residency in New York and I moved to New York. And I would visit Gary a lot. I would fly back to Vegas to visit him like two, three times a year from New York. I would always sleep on his floor, uh, no problem. And one time uh, I was visiting him and we were sitting around. And usually what I would do is I would sit with him for hours. We talk about magic, you know, practice magic. Well, anyway, he said, well, I want to show you this new bodybuilding video, Mari. I said, no, that's okay. Because I knew he was fucking creepy, right? It was going to be something creepy. And I'm like, no, no, no thanks. He's like, uh, no, it just takes a second. It's, she's Filipino. Tremendous body structure, those calves. It'll just take a second. I'm all right, Garrett, it's okay. He says, it's just going to take a minute. And I said, no, I'm good. I don't need to see this. And I walk out of the room. He follows me across the room and he says, what's the matter? You can't just watch this for 10 seconds? All these years, kid, I've been giving you free magic lessons. And all you've got to do is, is watch this one thing. You know what, kid? You're cut off. And I, I was so, I was so fucking mortified. I, I like hid in the back room. There's one room where it's all chrome magic and I, I slept in the chrome room. It was cold and we didn't talk the rest of the night. And uh, it was Thanksgiving too, by the way. <laughs> so the next morning I, I changed my flight. I just to go right back to New York because I, I just don't want to handle this bullshit. And um, I let him show me the tape, right? And it was like this Filipino chick in a bikini and she's just flexing her calves as they do in these like amateur bodybuilding videos. See, that wasn't a big deal, was it? I'm like, yeah, I, I gotta go. But after that day, 
I don't know. I guess we just weren't as close anymore, you know. He couldn't show me, like, weird porn shit. And, um, yeah. Finally, the call comes. One of the biggest casinos in Las Vegas wants me to perform in their showroom. Finally. They recognize the true greatest magician in the world. So... They say, okay, listen, we want you to do a Chinese act because we have this new Chinese pagoda room. You would match the decor. So what we want you to do is, you know, have a whole Chinese thing going on, you know, like the outfit, the magic, you know. And I said, yeah, 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 anything, anything. You know, I'll, I'll fix this later. You know, it doesn't matter. I'll do it. And they said, okay, we want you to audition at this venue in Hollywood, this magic venue in Hollywood. You worked there for a week. The entertainment director from Vegas comes out to see you. It'll be great. So I flew to San Francisco, Chinatown. I got this Chinese robe. And then I had this this guy make me a, a table with bamboo on it. And then a little, you know, lettering on this box. And yeah, it was really, really stupid. So I... <laughs> the, the show was peppered with all these Don Rickles and Henny Youngman jokes, just like Gary told me to. He said, well, I want you to be the female Don Rickles. I want you to get out there and and blow them away. And so I walked out there and I said to everybody, hey, everybody, have you seen my cousin on too long? Yeah, I'm from the Orient, Orient Heights. What is this, an audience or an oil painting? Wow, it's so quiet in here. I can hear the zippers in the men's room. And then I would do some magic. And then I would say other horrible things. And I ended the show with, well, you know, it's not the size of the wand that matters. It's the power within. Good night. Now, of course, I I did not get that job. And Gary reprimanded me when I got back to Las Vegas. He said, You know, they wanted to kick you out the first night. I said, you know, you told me to say these things. So humiliating. I thought, God, you know, I am truly a highly skilled magician, but I've just made a fucking fool of myself in front of all these influential people. So I thought, you know, the, I think the only way to fix this is if I competed in the world championship of magic and I started to train for it and I told Gary and he said, well, you know, you got to practice eight hours a day. So it was like a rocky moment, like because I said, you know, we're going to train for the world championship of magic. And he's like, well, you better do billiard balls because the judges won't know what they're looking at. That's a high skill trick. They won't even know what a triple roll is. You know, and I was working on it. I kept dropping the balls and I said, oh, I can't do this. And he said, no, you can do this. And suddenly I did it. And the world championship was is in a different place every year. It's just like the Olympics. It changes countries every three years. So that year was in Lisbon. And when you go to the world championship of magic, it's uh, it's like any convention with you know high ceilings and people speaking different languages and everybody being total magic dorks, but in their own culture. So people are wearing all black, but they're from Brazil, or they're, they have glitter shirts on from China. So it was like, the, this Harry Potter shit is so fucking pedestrian. It's, it's not even real. Like it's, the real magic is fucking awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome to the World Championship of Magic. And now, presenting all the way from Chicago, Illinois, it's Marites Cervano. I didn't win anything, but like I but like that that guy left me a note at the end, like Uh you didn't win anything, but, but good job. So these days, I live in Seattle, taking care of my little kid, and I'm just sitting at the bank, getting a new ATM card, looking at my parking, and I get a text from a famous magician 
with the 702 area code. And he says, uh, Gary's not feeling well. You better call him. And I, I barely even talk to Gary anymore because he's got dementia and he's always, all he does is parrot Fox News. You got to get the immigrants out. You got to get the immigrants out. It's just, he's not making any sense. He's not his funny self anymore. But I call him and he says, well, I want to go see mom and dad and baby brother. Now, this is really weird because usually this is the guy with the unflappable spirit. When he lost a leg due to diabetes, he said, if I can't dance, I'll sing. If I can't sing, I'll draw. If I can't draw, I'll do magic. Doesn't matter. And so for him to say he was ready to go was a big deal. And I said to him, oh, you'll be fine. And he said, oh, you don't know how to say goodbye, do you? And I said, you know what? I'll be there tonight. I left my kid at my ex's place. I threw everything in a backpack and I just walked onto a plane three hours later, which I've never done. It's just so crazy. So there I am on the flight and I tell the people next to me, yeah, I, uh, my mentor is dying, which is why I'm going out there. And they said, oh, and they settled back in their seats. And I realized, oh, okay, this is a big deal. Cause I never actually had to deal with death before this. I walk off the plane, my good friend picked me up and she drove me to the hospital and I, I was standing there in the hallway looking in this dark room and I said, what the fuck am I doing here? What am I going to do? What am I going to say? She said, just go in there and hold his hand. I walk in there and the sheets rustle. The old master's eyes crack open and he looks at me, his lips part, he's about to to share with his star magic student the last bit of wisdom before he leaves this earth. And he says to me, Hey, Mari, why don't you get in bed with me naked? If you were not in that hospital bed, I would strangle you. Which, of course, we both found hilarious in our own ways, and I knew he would make it through the night. What happened over the next two weeks is that we ended up bringing him home to his magic museum in a hospice situation. I was sleeping on the floor in a blow-up bed with another magician on the other side, sleeping there too. And um, I don't know, I, I kind of got bored while I was there, so I started dusting. Now, I do not clean I'm dust because uh, I'm a brown-skinned woman. I don't want to be seen cleaning. In this case, I was just bored, and so I, I started dusting his memorabilia. I picked up these uh, mugs with magician faces on them, and I, I dusted them off, and I, I picked up little toothpick holders with magician faces on them, little Mickey Mouse magician figurines, dusting those off. And underneath the second shelf in the corner, that's when I saw her. It was a bust of Cleopatra, which at first glance, I thought, oh, that's amazing. A powerful woman in history, and it's here, right? So I pick it up, I start dusting it, and as the cloth is going over her blonde hair, I look into her blue eyes, and I realize that that white skin is not the skin of... Cleopatra and that what I'm holding is not actually a bust of Cleopatra. It's actually a symbol of desire. And I, I look around the room and I suddenly realize that I'm surrounded with portraits of old white men. Now this room has, has not changed in almost 30 years, but suddenly I'm different <laughs> because Where's my picture in this room? Oh, wait a minute. My picture is in the back room where he put all the female magicians. And then I realized, wait a minute, that female magician room is there because he wanted to segregate the women away from the men. Then I was thinking about what my place was in magic and holy shit, wait a minute, he. He didn't think I belonged in the Hall of Magic, the main fucking room of magic. He thought I belonged in the back. And 
I myself have been supporting these ideas. I I agreed for decades that all of these white men owned magic. That despite the fact that the first magic trick ever recorded was on papyrus in Egypt, it was the cups and balls trick, right, performed in Africa, even though history says otherwise, I had been supporting the legends, the teachers, the icons, the the traditions of white male supremacy. I supported the idea that magic belonged to white men and everyone that supported white men. The next thing I know, I'm at Gary's memorial service. Now, he didn't want a funeral because he didn't want people crying over him, but whatever. So here we are at this shitty sports bar where the Magic Club meeting had ultimately ended up. All these magicians from across the city showed up. It was probably the one of the worst parties I've ever been to. It was just, just a lot of dudes and they watched some fucking PowerPoint on Gary, and I think I was in the PowerPoint maybe like for a split second, if at all. And then after the presentation, they, they had fucking chicken wings and hamburgers and shit. So I've been in magic for over 30 years, and I know quite a few accomplished magicians who I actually talked to on, on social media as well, right? So I've been keeping in touch, and when I see them in person, I say hello, and they look right through me, right through me, as if I am the cocktail waitress trying to start up a conversation, as if I'm a complete stranger. All these people acted as if they have no idea who I am. I guess after Gary died, I guess they just saw me as the mail-order bride that just so happened to be hanging out with Gary. They didn't see me for my talent or my enthusiasm or even me competing in the world championship of magic. It doesn't matter to them. They never thought that I belonged in the magic world at all. Even the people that were terrible at magic, these amateurs, they they never respected me for my talent or my drive. They just looked at me and they just didn't think this was the place for me. These days, I do my own magic. I have this new thing called the Decolonized Tarot and I'm a psychic entertainer. I do this on Zoom, I do shows in person, And I miraculously did a show uh, during the pandemic in summer of 2020. I was in New York in my theater and this woman asked me, she said, normally I'm, I'm not gay, but I have fallen in love with a woman and I want to know what advice you have for me. Now this was a momentous occasion because normally magic is all about the yuck yucks and the wah wahs. I mean, one of Gary's favorite jokes was, uh, did you hear about the rape in San Francisco? Yeah, two men held down a woman and one did her hair. He's always rape jokes, gay jokes, all this stuff. And here I am, the magician on stage, and people are asking me not only to show them magic, but real magic, right? Like actual advice which is my favorite kind of magic, because magic is real. Magic is not some fucking box trick or something on TV, a TV fucking magic special. Everyone knows what magic is. There's magic nails, magic car wash, the magic of sex, the magic of food. Everyone in the world has been the magician in so many instances. It's the myth of white male supremacy that tries to monetize magic and make it into a socioeconomic event and make it into a secret. No, magic, you don't need a fucking fancy private school to do magic. Magic's for everyone. And that's the biggest secret of all. Magic belongs to everyone. (laughs) 
I'll be right back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We're back. Each morning, on her way to make a living, my mother passes that business, now closed, where I've tried not to think of it. A man killed three Korean mothers just like mine. Her voice echoes heavy into the tunnel between us. What am I supposed to do? Be afraid? What am I supposed to do? In the tunnel between us, her voice echoes heavy, just like mine. A man killed three Korean mothers. I've tried not to think of it. That business now closed. Where to make a life? My mother passes each morning on her way. This is Risk. Once again, I'm Kristen Meinzer, sitting in for Kevin today. We just heard a palindrome poem by Franny Choi called It Is What It Is, which is in her brand new collection, The World Keeps Ending and the World Goes On. Perhaps you're already familiar with palindrome poems, but if you're not, you must use the same words in the first half of the poem as the second half, but reverse the order for the second half. It's a real creative feat, and in this case, a truly moving one. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story from Risk regular David Hu, but before that, a little something from Cody Hom, pronounced like homicide. Cody is a cartoonist who also does all sorts of theater production work, lighting, sound, and all that good stuff. You can find him at C7 Animatics on all the socials, and here's Cody now with a story we call, I Was an Entire Country for a Year. preface this story with I'm Chinese-American. The high school that I went to was really, really, really overpopulated. It's probably still overpopulated to this day. Since it was so overpopulated, the school had to create a gym class because they ran out of gym space. And so they called it Polar Bear. They would just send the kids outside onto the football field for their gym class, and they would just play sports no matter the season. And I think the only time they weren't allowed to send us outside was uh, if it was raining, snowing, for obvious reasons, uh, if it was icy, and I think if it was below 30 degrees. Now, on the first day of class, the teacher did roll call, obviously, uh, but we were in order by last names on the roster. And so he called us out by our last names. And after he finished roll call, he went to the side of the football field where he could like watch over all of us. That way he could make sure we weren't all trying to kill each other. So he walked off after we all split up. 
And so the entire class grabbed me and there were two other Asian kids in our class, grabbed all three of us, pulled us all aside and they went, hey, um, look, your names are probably gonna be hard to pronounce or hard to memorize. So we're just gonna assign you nicknames, okay? Now at the time, I'm, I'm a freshman in high school. I didn't know any better. So I was like, oh yeah, cool, totally sure. A nickname, what? I've never had a nickname before. That sounds great. And so we went along with it. And so they lined us up. They pointed at the first kid and they went, your name is Jackie Chan. They pointed at the second kid, they went, your name is Bruce Lee. And then they pointed at me and then they froze. And I was like, what is my name going to be? And they went, um, shit, we're out of famous Asian people. Um, you can be, you, you can be China. And I went, I'm sorry, what? And they went, your nickname's gonna be China. And I'm like, I'm being named after the entire country of China? And they went, yeah. At that point, I was like, okay, fuck, sure, I guess. I didn't have the strength of character to say anything back because I would have been like, no, call me by my actual fucking name. But anyway, so keep in mind, my name is Cody. That's a common name, honestly. I spent the entire year as the entirety of China. Now, keep in mind, none of these kids wanted to learn our names because they just assumed they would be hard to pronounce and hard to memorize. After the first day of class, all the other kids had left the football field, and so it was me and Jackie Chan left. And so I grabbed Jackie Chan by the shoulder, which is the weirdest sentence I've ever had to say, grabbed him by the shoulder, and I went, hey, before we go into the locker rooms, what is your name? Because I genuinely want to know. And he gave a very weak smile and sighed. And he went, my name's Edward, thank you for asking. And I went, my name is Cody, it's nice to meet you. And he went, it is nice to meet you too. And then we left. I'm 14 years old and I'm walking to school one morning and out of the blue, I hear someone scream, you fucking chink. Go back to China and eat a bowl of rice. Startled and confused because I don't even like rice. <laughs> and I look around and I see this middle-aged white guy standing on his porch across the street, staring at me and giving me the middle finger. And I wonder, what the hell is his problem? I had to brush it off because I'm late for school. The next morning, on my way to school, I see that guy standing on his porch, staring at me like a hawk and giving me the middle finger. And I could feel the adrenaline building up and my hands are clenched like a fist. I try to ignore it. As soon as I walk by his house, all I hear is, you fucking chink, go back to China and eat a bowl of rice. Oh my God, I feel like a moving target for this guy's racist gratification. And every morning for over a week, I can feel the anxiety building up like pins and needles exploding through my veins. My chest feels really tight, like my body is being submerged in water. And walking to school is beginning to suck. It's not because I'm out of shape, it's because this fucking asshole is ruining my day and I just can't take it anymore. And I tell my mom and dad about it one afternoon. I remember the expression on their faces, livid, beat red, obviously pissed off. Mom, who is this guy? I don't know, mom, is this crazy white guy down the block that's harassing me? My dad, in his broken English, why make trouble? What's his problem? Who is he? I don't know, dad. And both of my parents are, okay, we walk to his house, we tell him stop bothering you. I remember staring outside the window of my house and seeing my mom and dad walk down the street. I felt like I was watching one of those old Western movies and I'm really scared and nervous. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. 30 minutes later, they walk back into the house. And my dad's like, okay, don't bother you anymore. Thank God. The next morning on my way to school, I don't see that guy standing on his porch. Later that afternoon, on my way back home from school, I walk into my house and I see my mom standing there and staring at me. She's like, dadbat, I need to tell you something. The tone of her voice brought chills down my spine, followed by, a long, awkward pause and a deep breath. Okay, damn it. 
Someone threw a brick through our window and almost hit dad. Luckily, he's okay. After my mom told me that, I felt this bottomless pit in my stomach. Mom, did you call the police? Yeah, yeah, we called the police. Police don't do anything. No witnesses. I thought that was bullshit because someone broke our window in broad daylight. And I was like, Dad, what are we going to do about this? Are we going to kick his ass? And my dad said, no, no trouble. Just forget. Pissed off and confused because growing up in a blue-collar, white neighborhood like Pelham Parkway in the Bronx, the way everyone solves their problems is through physical violence. I remember when I was 10 years old, sitting on my porch, I see this guy marching down my street with a shovel full of dog shit. He goes up to my neighbor's house and catapults dog shit all over his driveway and porch. He's like, hey, asshole, cut your dog next time like everyone else, you motherfucker. I'm going to take the shovel and shove it up your ass. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, this guy knows how to handle the shit. <laughs> I wish my dad did the same as well. Things got worse after my parents escalated the incident. Others in the neighborhood started to harass me as well. It was like cancer and spreading fast. Call me chink, tell me go back to China where I belong. I remember one afternoon walking down my street and there was a school bus full of white boys from a local Catholic school pull up beside me and they all huddled up against the window of the bus and started screaming at me like wild dogs. Get them, I'm gonna fuck you up you chink. I'm gonna go to your house, break your windows and kill your parents. As soon as that bus took off, my body felt completely numb. All I wanted to do was curl up in the field position to die. I fucking hated living in that neighborhood. And I begged mom and dad to move. But they were like, no, Gong Gong bought this house. Gong Gong wants us to stay. Gong Gong is my grandfather who gave my parents his entire life savings to buy a house that we're in right now because we lived in a small apartment in a really bad neighborhood called Valentine's Abbey in the Bronx. And the only advice my parents had for me was, Go the other way, the longer way to school, that is. One afternoon, on my way back home from school, I'm exhausted, and I happen to see Jerry, my neighbor across the street. Jerry is this crazy ex-Vietnam vet, and he's like, hey, kid, come here. I got something for you. So I walk across the street, curious, and he hands me a hammer, and he's like, hey, kid, next time you see that motherfucker, I want you to beat the shit out of him until he dies. <laughs> I'm like, cool, thanks. <laughs> I was hoping for candy, but I'll sell for a hammer instead. <laughs> the next morning, I'm getting ready for school, and I find out the other way is under construction, and my only alternative option is to walk back to that crazy asshole's house. And I'm scared of shit, because I think this guy's going to kill me. So I take the hammer Jerry gave me, and I put it in my book bag. <laughs> On my way to school, I can feel the anxiety building up. My heart is pounding out of my chest. You know that feeling that you get when you're on a roller coaster and it's about to hit the climax? As soon as I walk by that guy's house, he's not standing on his porch. I see him walking down the street. So I pull out the hammer out of my book bag and I follow him. As I get closer, he suddenly drops to the ground face first. And I was like, wow, that was easy. And I hear a loud thud. It sounded like a sack of potatoes being dropped from a two-story building. I buckle up and stand there, and he's convulsing like a fish out of water. And I slowly walk up to him. He has his hand on his chest, and his other hand is reaching up towards me. And I just stare at that endless void in his eyes against his pale white complexion. And it brings back a memory of my dad when I was eight years old, living in that small apartment on Valentine's Avenue in the Bronx. I remember I was standing in the kitchen with my mom. It was close to midnight. And I hear someone approach the front door of our apartment and put the key in the lock. But what was odd was it didn't turn. So my mom walks up to the door and looks through the people. And it's my dad. And she's like, Mercy, uh, how come you can't open the door? And I hear footsteps in the background. And they get louder and louder. And suddenly I hear my mom scream, oh my God. And on the other side of the door, I hear someone yell, Give me your money, I'll cut your throat, you fucking chink. Followed by screaming and sounds of fist exploding throughout the hall of the building as my mom stared through that people in fear. The noises were brief. However, the trauma lasted a lifetime after that key turned in the lock. 
And I see my dad rush into the apartment, slam the door shut. He's trembling, he's out of breath, and he's holding his fist in his hand. And I could see the blood dripping throughout the knuckles of his fingers onto the kitchen floor. It's bright red and glossy. And I stand there and I stare at it. It's a lot to process for an eight-year-old, especially after his bedtime. <laughs> and I hear my mom scream, David, go to sleep, no more trouble. As my mom wrapped my dad's hand up with a kitchen towel, his face is pale, and I just stare through that endless void in his eyes. And I realize this piece of shit laying on the ground, convulsing like a fish out of water, is going to die. And no one fucking gives a shit about him except for me. So I walk over to the neighbor's house. I knock on the door. Hey, call the ambulance. This body's about to die. They arrive, and they pick him up. After that incident, I don't see that guy anymore. And a couple weeks later, I walk into school one morning, and I happen to pass by that guy's house. And I see him sitting on his porch. He looks really weak. He's wearing a robe. So what I do is I walk across the street. I'm standing in front of his house. And I smile, and I wave at him. And I see him struggle to get out of his chair. And I'm hoping he's going to thank me for saving his life. And maybe we could become friends. And the first thing he says is, you fucking chink, go back to China and eat a bowl of rice. I guess we're not going to be friends. <laughs> and I continue to smile and walk away. Because just like any other bully out there, they're scared and insecure, and they hide behind their hateful words. Eventually, he died. <laughs> and a Cambodian family moved in. And shortly afterwards, a black and Hispanic family moved to the block, and my neighborhood became less and less white. Looking back as an adult, I never understood why my parents chose not to fight or flight, because it was obvious our lives were in danger. As members of the Asian community suffered as well, they reacted the same way my parents did growing up in the Bronx. And what I learned is that it's because of Eastern Asian culture. It's all about being part of the community, not the conflict. And that said, being the bigger person is a lot better way to handle one's shit. Thank you. is almost all for Asian American Lives 5. This is Deb Never Behind Me Now. Her new EP just dropped and it's called Thank You for Attending. We just heard the story The Lifesaver by David Hu, who you can find at DaveHu718 on Instagram. May we all learn to be the bigger person as he is and still retain our ability to laugh at neighbors who throw dog excrement at each other. We'll be right back. Well, folks, it has been such an honor to be a part of this episode alongside our incredibly talented storytellers. Huge thanks to Kevin and the entire Risk team for inviting me to host. 
If you want more of me, I would be so grateful if you'd check out one of my many podcasts. I co-host How to Be Fine, which dissects the inner workings of the betterment industry. I co-host that with Jolenta Greenberg, who is a prior risk storyteller. She is just fantastic. I also co-host Daily Fail, which is a deep dive into the absurdity, racism, and humor of the tabloid press. It never gets old. I hope you all enjoyed listening to today's episode as much as I enjoyed hosting it. And don't forget, today's the day. Take a risk. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.